The reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 12, verses 22 through 31. Jesus said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will God clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep seeking what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that seek all these things, and your Creator knows that you need them. Instead, seek God's kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, sometimes you ask a lot of us, like not worrying. Thank you for the larger picture that you remind us of always. Spirit, speak to us in our hearts and our minds, irrespective of my words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Consider the lilies, the ravens, the many parrots, the fields. I love this scripture. I love nature, earth, sky, oceans were the key to my first understanding of an almighty God. I was not raised Christian. This was new to me. And nature was a key for me. Then, while living in Fiji, we saw many parrots. Well, they're not that many. They were probably that large. They were living among the chili hibiscus plants, which were border hedges absolutely everywhere. Now, if you are inclined to look up mini parrot, as I did, you won't find them. Turns out that's just what we all called them. They look like collared lorry. They may or may not be that. We called them mini parrots, and it sticks in my heart. I learned to look for them and found them infrequently. They were shy little creatures, gorgeous but shy, but I knew they were in there, and the chili hibiscus was a nice, thick bush, which is why it was a border hedge. And then one morning, one flew right at me. That particular morning, I was glum, and you might have noticed that I'm usually rather enthusiastic, so this was unusual for me. I was unsettled. These are both being glum and unsettled. They're common symptoms of anxiety, and I knew that but I could not walk it away as much as I tried to talk myself out of it. 
And I was walking to a morning chapel service, which is full of hymns of praise and joy, yet there I was. And I went through my mental list of, okay, here are your blessings, here is the natural world that is so glorious, you have this beautiful family, you have this ocean right there, but nope. And then I noticed movement. So of course, I look straight for the chili hibiscus, and there is a mini parrot flying truly right at me. It stops, because I'm thinking it's redirected, it doesn't know what it's doing, but it stops midair as if to look at me and say, hello, I'm gorgeous, and turn away and fly away. If you remember the story in the book of Numbers about Balaam and his donkey, you will remember that Balaam was annoying, annoyed, grouchy, and beating his donkey, who refused to move forward. But it was only the donkey, we are told, who could see the angel of the Lord with a flaming sword right in their path. And the donkey was saving Balaam from walking into that flaming sword. Only the donkey, not the human. This mini parrot flew right at me as if it was a gift of beauty. Its willingness to come out of its hiding place was step number one. Its abrupt turn was step number two. It could have flown past me, it could have hit me, it did not. It was as if it was a planned course. I had, in that moment, my personal Balaam moment. My eyes opened and I could just hear Jesus' words in my mind, I remembered them. Consider the lilies. And that phrase always causes me to regroup. It is one of my calming phrases. Consider the lilies, fields of tulips, sunflowers, ocean, birds, forest, your golden hills, the redwood tree, nature, beauty. And I have nothing to do with it. That beauty continues to interrupt human distraction. My focus today is not about interruptions to God's created beauty. That will come in September as we celebrate together the seasons of creation. Today's focus instead is on appreciating where and how beauty prevails even during interruptions like a very foul mood, and tragedy. Now consider the lilies, Jesus said. Look at their multiple colors, the strength of their stem, how regular and reliable their blooming is and their blooming periods become. And those blooming periods all come from tough times because they go dormant. And where do they reside? Under the ground. Ask yourself, where is the agency of a lily or a sunflower? So rather than focusing on ourself, there are times when we can just simply turn aside and remember that God has, is, and will do more than our anxieties in the moment can account for. More. Can any of you 
Jesus said. Can any of us, by worrying, add a single hour to your, to our lifespan? No, but do we do it anyway? Yes. Consider the lilies when you say yes to that question. When anxieties take over and they do, consider the lilies as Jesus' encouragement to stop and redirect. Maybe laying something down. Maybe even the hand motion. That we can start again by making decisions that are not controlled by our anxiety. Luke commentator Alan Culpepper writes, anxiety does not solve our problems. Anxiety is ineffective as a means of improving our lot in life. However, it seems to be a universal act. It is not just us. I, I have seen it in every country where I have lived. It is cultivated by people of all generations and all cultures. How we manage the normalcy of anxiety tells us when we can put the rock down. If you are like me, and in this regard I hope you are not, when Jesus' injunction to do not worry, well, that immediately makes me start worrying. He, Jesus, recognizes that yes, we worry, and we need to be reminded to, let's step aside from worrying. In Richard Foster's, Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, he addresses anxiety. He recognizes its power to sway us and push us. So writes, when you, when we consider the lilies, you do so not to gain power. Anybody want to be a lily? Me neither. You do this not to gain power, but to gain prophetic perspective, something outside of your control. And that is the easy part. The harder part is relinquishing our desire for control, which is another reason I love this Via's field of flowers. Where's our control? We must come to the place, Foster writes, the place in our lives when we can lay down the everlasting burden of always needing to manage. For most of us, the need to control is something deeply ingrained in us. It's part of our doing culture, which is beautiful, but sometimes we can overstep. The loss of control of finances, relationships, job, committee, body, are all huge and natural causes to worry, but what do you do with it? So when I hear Foster or other scholars reference God's perspective, I imagine fields. You may imagine a different thing. You may imagine not just flowers or birds or nature, but perhaps grandma's special jam or special cookies, a faithful pet. The point is coming to a place where we can lay down our anxiety 
and remember what the psalmist says. Considering all you've done, God, what are humans that you are mindful of them? And it's an intentionally rhetorical question because the rest of Psalm 8 says, and look how you are mindful of us. Lilies were not Jesus's first suggestion as Jim read it. First mentioned was the ravens. Consider the raven. They neither sow nor do they reap. They don't work for their food. They don't have storehouses of wealth or merchandise yet. God provides food for the ravens. For the fun of it, do a quick search and find out where ravens are mentioned in scripture. Not quite as often as donkeys, but you'll find a raven in Noah's ark, the first bird to go out. God ordered the ravens to feed the prophet Elijah when he was crippled by anxiety. Ravens are mentioned in the book of Job and in the Psalms. And as you heard this morning, of how much more value are you? Now we're going to take a turn. This question of how much more value are you brings peace, but it also raises ire. Simon Wiesenthal wrote the book, Sunflower. Chat, would you please share how many of you have read Sunflower? Sanctuary, how many of you have read The Sunflower? Oh, awesome. I get the first go with you. It is not a happy book. Simon Wiesenthal experienced the horror of a concentration camp, facing daily the reality of extinction at the whim of those Nazi soldiers. His story is short. The story here is about 100 pages. The rest is the symposium, a collection of writings from well-known people who respond to the question Simon Wiesenthal raises, which I will get to. Wiesenthal shows this community of prisoners, the words seem oxymoron, but they are not. The community of the unwanted, of the hated, of the taunted, of the terrorized, of this group that included himself, he writes, we were members of varied social strata, rich, poor, highly educated, illiterate, religious, agnostic, kind-hearted, and selfish. One common fate made all of us equal. We were hated. As they were being marched to a work site, Wiesenthal writes, you could read on the faces of the passers-by that we were written off as doomed. The people of Lemberg, the city where the concentration camp was held, had become accustomed to the sight of tortured Jews, and therefore they looked at us as ones look at a herd of cattle driven to the slaughter. On the way in this particular march, Wiesenthal noticed a military cemetery where on each grave there was planted 
a sunflower. As straight as a soldier on parade, he describes it, the flower had seemed to absorb the sun's rays like a mirror. It was gaily colored, he writes, butterflies fluttered from blossom to blossom, from flower to flower, as if they were carrying messages grave to grave, whispering something to each flower to pass below to the soldier buried. A simple moment of beauty or realization that in the hands of the Nazis, no natural beauty would touch him in an, in, in, in an eventual, unmarked, undecorated, unknown mass grave. But, he writes, for some strange reason, the sight of the sunflowers has aroused new thoughts in me. I felt I would come across them again, that they were a symbol with special meaning for me. During his labors, Wiesenthal was singled out from his group of prisoners and was led to a hospital, to the bed of a man named Karl, who was a Nazi soldier dying. The soldier had requested to speak to a Jewish prisoner. The soldier relayed to Simon his hate crimes against the Jews, which included the possibility of Simon's own family. Then, knowing he was about to die, he asked Simon for forgiveness. Karl the Nazi was raised Christian and everything he did as a soldier was counter to what he was taught and he admits this. Simon allows we the readers to feel empathy for this soldier, to feel his sense of regret for what he participated in and what he perpetrated. Simon Wiesenthal ends his story with a question to you. You are a prisoner in a concentration camp and a dying Nazi soldier asks you for forgiveness. This is the final line of his book. What would you do? Now the second edition has the symposium included that I, I showed you. It was included in 1997 which makes the book the size that it is. The symposium is made up of many different voices, known and unknown, mostly known. You'll find both the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu contributing to responses. And the answers are different. And none of them are easy. All of them are soul searching for each of us People took his question very, very seriously and still do. The sunflower then became a symbol beyond beauty to remembrance. What would, should you do? It's good. It and I will come to reconciliation. I dropped my timer. I'm gonna pick up one voice only and that of Robert McAfee Brown, who you know and love. Brown's response to the question was the possibility, to the, the question, the possibilities and limits of forgiveness includes the following. It is not the whole thing. I don't have time to read the whole thing. First, 
He names the reality of the persecuted with unanswered questions about the creator seemingly not interrupting the death, the brutal death of six million innocent people. There are no easy answers in the face of mass tragedy or the question, where was God during a mass genocide, shooting or bombing? Brown references Eli Wiesel's The Gates of the Forest, where the grand rabbi is asked about God's assumed absence or somehow transparent involvement in deep evil. Rabbi's response, what is there left for us to do? Brown's response, this is what we must exhume from the debris of our inadequate answers. I am quoting him, answers that come from the precincts of our hearts. It will be doing rather than speculating. What is there left to do? Only everything from doing justly, loving kindness and walking humbly with our God to standing with victims and the oppressed. Consider the ravens, the lily, the mini parrot, the rivers, the mountains, a child's sincere smile, the fields of possibilities on different topics may just be those seeds, those bulbs in the ground, ready to grow, ready to grow up and cause you to recognize what calls you back to the groundedness of God's amazing and endless love and sends you out again into the ministry of your lives with the vigor of a song in your heart. Amen.